Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. I was with a group of pastors earlier this year, and we were, we were telling wedding stories. How many of y'all have just kind of like a, a, a cringeworthy wedding moment that you can remember in your life? Maybe you don't, but I, I've gotten to go to and attend, you know, several weddings, officiate several weddings. And no doubt, on the one hand, it is, is probably the most fun thing that I get to do as a pastor is to get to, you know, stand in front of a, a couple that just is so deeply in love and get to watch as they enter, enter into holy matrimony, right? We were telling stories, and I have this one story where uh, it was earlier this year, there was uh, the whole family of the bride was about an hour late to the ceremony, and you can imagine just the tension, right, that you felt between the groom's family and where is that? And it was like, it, it got dicey for a little bit. You know what I'm saying? So I'm telling this story. We're, we're swapping wedding stores with this group of pastors. And this guy's like, listen, I, I've got one that is just, you'll never believe it. Like it's elegant wedding, beautiful. They spared no expense, like just money evident everywhere. You know what I'm saying? The bride's been dressed for like, she looks like days, right? Like just, she's been going. It's, it's middle of the day. She's got all the pictures done. She's gotten all the different things done. She's put together. She's perfect. It's pristine. Everything's awesome. And she is snacking on the various hors d'oeuvres that were available and uh, starts to look a little pale. And so it's like, all right, well, just get a few more snacks, do whatever you need to do, wash it down with a glass of champagne. They start the ceremony, right? And she proceeds to get more pale, you know? And some of you already know where this story's going, right? It doesn't end with this, like, he, he says, it didn't end with this just kind of polite, like, burp, you know? There's vomit everywhere. <laughs> on the groom, on the ring bearer, on the best man, on my buddy, on the officiant, on herself, you know? So he's telling this story, you know, it's just this, it, it'd be one thing if it was kind of you're like, there's 20 people there and it's just family, but it's like, it's this elegant, pristine wedding. So they have to like move everything over to the reception area, totally change plans. And he ends the story by saying, I don't know if I've ever seen a groom more delicately kiss his bride. <laughs> in that moment right there at the end. <laughs> and it's really sweet, right? And, and, and it reminds me, honestly, of just the messiness of the church and Jesus at times. Because I, I know all over Scripture, one of the ways that we are described as the church is we are the bride of Christ. And Christ is the groom. And he is waiting and he is going to come back to return to find a ready bride. And I know this. I've been hanging around church for a little while. We can be messy. We can be messy as people, can't we? And, and sometimes you just go, man, I'm really thankful that Jesus treats us as delicately, as tenderly, but also with as much love as he does. Because sometimes I really do wonder if we, uh, trying to adorn ourselves in our own righteousness, our own clothing, if we really look that pretty, you know? And I think in Acts, what you see in Acts chapter 9 is you have an example of some really messy situations, a really messy person, if you will, who's entering into the church community. And I don't know if there's ever been a more messy person to start attending church than Saul. I was trying to think of all week, just even a modern equivalent. And really in America, there, there isn't one that we could wrap our heads around who Saul would have been like as a figure for the church today. See, because it, it, we'd have to be almost be like in, in China or somewhere where the public worship of Jesus was illegal. And you've had this prominent figure who's legendary because he's known all throughout regions for having 
orders and blessings from the government to go and to dismantle and to, to terrorize and to murder people who were gathered practicing the way or practicing after following Jesus. I mean, this man was feared. This man had a track record. This man had a history. And this man comes to experience Jesus and this man joins the church. I can just only imagine what, I mean, we'd be like, do we need to have a member meeting about this? Do we need to gather everyone together? Do we need to get the elders together and vote about whether we're gonna let this guy join our community? That's, that's what church can be like. But there, there is a beauty in the mess. There's a beauty in the mess of this story. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter nine. We're gonna really just read through this whole story of Paul's conversion is how it's labeled in my Bible. On the road to Damascus, Acts chapter nine, starting in verse one. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, if you remember, this isn't our first introduction to this character, Saul. Katie actually mentioned him last week, that at the murder of Stephen, as Stephen is killed, pelted with rocks, laying down, breathing out his last breath, glorifying God, forgiving the people who are sinning against him, which is this beautiful story that Katie did, I thought, just a wonderful job preaching in last week. Saul, Saul is there, not just accepting of the execution, but it says Saul approved of his execution and they're coming and they're laying their coats down at his feet in Acts 8.3. Saul was ravaging the church, entering house to house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Paul is that guy. He's, he's a terror to the church. And as we come into Acts chapter nine now, the church, like Katie ended last week, the, 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 the killing of Stephen results in the, the spread of the church now across the region in Judea and Samaria. And so Saul is like, I'm, I'm gonna get a hold of this thing. I wanna get out in front of this thing. He's like, let me go, let me go. Give me some orders, give me some papers so that I might go and, and punish these people, capture these people, get this thing contained so that it would quit spreading around the region. That's where he sets off to go on his way. So it says he's, he's asking the high priest in the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He's trying to stop this spread of the way. It's this derogatory name that's given to the early people who are following the way or the teachings of Jesus. They're believing in him as the Messiah. He's like, we need to get a hold of this thing. We need to get this thing, like the, the cat's out of the bag, so to speak. And he's trying to bring it back in. So he's like, give me papers. I'm gonna bind them up, bring them back here. And it says, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now notice that Paul isn't actually persecuting Jesus. Jesus, where is Jesus at this time? Ascended on the throne. So Jesus makes no distinction or no delineation between himself and the church. That's important for us to know that Jesus is not, is not separating any sort of value statement between himself and his bride. He's saying, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Who is Paul persecuting? He's persecuting the believers in Jesus. Jesus, the people who are following after Jesus are members of the body of Christ. And so Jesus says, quit persecuting me. And he says, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. 
The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So, I don't know about you, but I always thought Saul became Paul on the road to Damascus. And that's not what the Bible says. Isn't that weird? Saul isn't actually referred to as Paul until Acts chapter 13. It's actually probably better understood that Saul went by Paul and Paul went by Saul all of his life. But it is unique that that the biblical authors don't actually start changing his name until after this encounter. We have to understand that we can't help but read the Bible with Western eyes. Paul, though, Saul, in this moment, as he is going along the way, who is he worshiping? Yahweh. He's worshiping the father of the, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Saul, in his mind, is convinced that he is doing the right thing for God. Saul experiences what I would say is a, a religious conversion in this moment. So Saul, even though he already knows all the customs of the Jewish traditions, he already knows who Yahweh is, he already worships God on high, he has now a revelation, though, of who Jesus is. And that's significant. In this moment, what Saul experiences is a radical, actual encounter with Jesus Christ. And from this moment, his whole paradigm about who Jesus was and who the church is and what grace means completely changes. But when we read this, we read it as his conversion moment, as if he was changing teams. But it's, it's less like he changed teams, more like he received Jesus as a savior. And now he's able to walk in grace. Now he's able to start teaching the other Jewish leaders, the other Jewish people, who this Messiah actually was. This is significant. Because a lot of us who sit here in Western America thousands of years later, we experience more of an irreligious conversion. This would be me. I grew up thinking that the point of life, you know, in my, in my house growing up, the point of life was don't disrespect your parents because they'll, you know, I didn't grow up in the like, go sit in the corner and think about it age of life, right? I, I grew up in the like, I'll whoop you if you do that again. You know what I mean? So like, I thought life was about moral betterment. I just need to do what I can to be a better person. I thought life was about treating others around you with dignity and respect, being a good citizen, honoring people in positions of authority. And all those things, while, are, while they're morally good, they're not eternally significant. And so what I had an experience with is the person of Jesus, not like, not like Saul. I didn't have all of this uh, thing to import about who God was, the creator of the heavens and the earth. I didn't have all of that to bring to the table. I, I just went, I didn't know he existed, and now I know he exists. And so now I'm going to follow after this person of Jesus. There's a different kind of conversion, even if we look at just... If we were to poll the people of this church, some of you experienced a more religious conversion where you grew up in the church. You maybe grew up in fundamentalism. Maybe you grew up in a church that preached Jesus just fine, but you thought that you were saved by the way you behaved. But you had to come to a deeper understanding of the fact that it was by grace you are saved through faith in who Christ is. Some of us, though, experienced this drugs to Jesus story. Maybe you could say it that way. You were doing something completely different. You did not think he existed at all, but somehow he encountered you and he brought you in. This is what's beautiful. So many different stories all look very differently, but they all end with the same person, Jesus. Here's how, here's how you can kind of gauge and measure how you think about salvation is actually how you think about how you measure spirituality. If I were to ask you, 
It, pretend it's not me on a stage and you're in this room. Pretend it's just you and me at coffee. How do you measure spirituality? See, for the more irreligious person, you think about like the things that you experience or the things that you feel. And for the more religious person, you might point to, well, I'm going to measure my spirituality by the fruits of the Spirit. But truthfully, the way that you measure spirituality is by your understanding of grace. This is how Paul puts it in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So this is Paul, Saul, writing now years later to a young pastor. And he's saying, hey, believe it when you hear it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What's that next line? Of whom I am foremost. You know what Paul had a really, really deep understanding of? Not that he was perfect, not that he was demonstrating all this good godly fruit, although good godly fruit does matter. You can't just dismantle the fruit of the Spirit. But what you should look at is he's saying, I have received so much grace. Saul was such a messy individual. And then he has this radical experience with Jesus, but he never gets over the fact that he was chief among sinners. I was, I was foremost. I received mercy for this reason is the next line. I was the chief sinner, but I have received mercy that in me as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's the thing that we all have to grasp. It's not just by grace we are saved initially. It's by grace that we are continually being saved. And so as you have this deeper revelation of the grace that God has given to you, that he's pardoned from your uh, spiritual bank account, if you will, the grace that he has lavished upon you, as you sit in, as you understand that grace, that's how you actually go about bringing about transformation in your life. Motivation, discipline, all of these things are really good things. If we want to talk about being more loving, being more joyous, patient, kind, all these, all these fruits that we think of when we think of like what makes a good Christian, I would just argue with you, the only way you attain the fruits of the Spirit is by continually amazing yourself with the grace that God has entrusted to you. You didn't earn it. You can't just like, I, I, I've tried this, you've tried this. I can't just muster patience in a moment. I try when I'm driving some time and then I get behind somebody that's going, oh man, like what's the, uh, like Boise, when you go back on that road and it's supposed to, it's 35 and people go 25 and I'm like, oh, I just got to be more patient. You know, it just, it doesn't work in that moment for me. Does it work for you? No, but what I need to keep coming back to is this deeper revelation that, wait, God has been patient with me. God has been loving to me. God has extended grace. He's given me something that I did not deserve. And as I marvel in that thought, it helps me walk away from sin because I'm not going to cheapen the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross. I'm not going to cheapen his grace. So I'm not going to turn, I'm going to turn from my sin in my life. And I'm going to, I'm going to try to adopt more of who he is, more of his character in my life based on looking at what he's already extended to me. Not something that I can muster on my own. An irreligious and a religious conversion. Paul Saul has this beautiful encounter with Jesus that leaves him changed. I mean, first of all, he's blind. How humiliating on the one hand. He's got to be led into the city that he was going to persecute and to destroy people. And now he's got to be led by the hand into the city. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. And then he encounters somebody. It says in verse 10, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. Good response for a disciple. 
right? God says your name. Just say, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Now here's the thing. A lot of people would have been named Saul back in this day. But God is really specific, which is good. And a little concerning for this guy, Ananias, our guy, Ananias. He's like, wait, which Saul? Saul of Tarsus. Look at what he says. For behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So Ananias answers, Lord, I've heard lots about this guy and how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here in this city where he's come now, I think he's actually been given authority by the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Here's what Ananias says. God, okay, Saul, this Saul? Yes, Ananias, that Saul. Are you sure? (laughs) Are you serious? That's really what you want me to do? Listen, church, you should be so encouraged that Ananias in this story is celebrated for his obedience in the midst of questions. Obedience mixed with reluctancy. That is so often how this thing works. Again, I just want to continually point out to you, the Bible is not based on these superheroes in the faith that never make mistakes. No, Ananias is celebrated in the story because he's, he's obedient even while he has questions. So God's like, go talk to Saul. Ananias is like, are you, are you kidding me, Lord? That guy? He has permission from the authorities to kill me. That's who you want me to talk to. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. I, I, as I was reading this today, this morning, I woke up this morning, so it wasn't in my notes before, but I thought to myself, I wonder who this morning in our church would hear those words and receive the identity of chosen instrument. Like, who is it that's in this room right now and you have a track record of mistakes? Listen to Saul. Saul has killed people. Saul has persecuted the church. Saul has done horrible things. And God says, nope, he's my chosen instrument. So he's saying to you right now, How many of you have just played the track over and over in your mind of just disaster, of this mistake, that mistake, and God's wanting to write a new song starting today? You'd receive the identity of his chosen instrument where he's going to start writing his redemptive melody on your life today. That's what I wondered. Saul is his chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and 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 kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Here's what I know after doing ministry for a while, that's an awesome outcome for something that usually takes a long time and is really messy. Ananias risked a ton that day going to Saul, laying his hands on him, preaching Jesus to him, praying for him. Could have cost him his life. And and a lot of times when you go out and you reach out to your messy friends, guess what? Scales don't fall off their eyes right away. They don't don't just start going. And in the next line, it says that Saul went and he went about preaching the name of Jesus. I prayed for a lot of friends who don't receive Christ right away and they certainly don't just start preaching the next day. Listen, like life is messy. People are messy. And people don't experience transformation right away. 
And, and what I know about Ananias' move there is it took a lot of courage and it took a lot of faith for him to go and to go and pray for this person that he knew had permission to kill him. I, I want to talk for just a moment about how I think we have done such a good job in a lot of ways in our culture today about identifying how to protect your own emotional health and have boundaries in your life and protect yourself against different people. And listen to me, like there's a whole series we could talk about uh, uh, the value of having boundaries in your life, what people are maybe safe and what people maybe aren't safe for you to be with. And here's what also I know. I also know that as that language gets more common, we are too quick to label people as abusive and as not safe. And we, cu we cut and create these boundaries out of our life and we commit to never seeing that person again, never talking to that person again, even if the spirit might be prompting us to go and bring about reconciliation. So here, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you need to go and you need to go talk to that person that wronged you or that hurt you or did this thing to you. That is not what I'm saying. Here's what I am saying is that the spirit will prompt you oftentimes in directions that you are very uncomfortable to go. Ananias is told in a moment, go pray for this guy. Ananias could have, in today's vernacular, said, I don't think he's safe to be around. Well, listen, I've put, put some boundaries in my life to protect my emotional health, and I, I've got some boundaries so that I can just protect who I am, because listen, he is, he is, like, he's been canceled by the church, God. I don't know if you've read this in the bulletin or not yet, but I got, I got, there's a picture of him for the security team to look at. He is not allowed to come on in, right? And here's what I'll say to you, church. There are probably people in your life and maybe they don't make you very comfortable. Maybe you don't like being around them a lot, but if the spirit prompts you, your answer should be, here I am, Lord. Because God is always about bringing reconciliation to people vertically with him, but then also what does that vertical reconciliation often bring about? Horizontal reconciliation. Does that mean it's gonna work perfectly every time? Absolutely not. Does that mean that every single person in your life that maybe has been abusive to you, you need to go and reconcile to? That is not what I'm saying at all. But I am saying that if the Spirit of God is prompting you to go and have a conversation, to go and talk to somebody that you've maybe drawn a boundary where God has not put a boundary line, then you need to be obedient to him before you're obedient to somebody else. Does that make sense? I am thankful that we have this model in Ananias that was somebody who was willing to walk a journey with somebody who was not safe to be around. Saul's life was really, really messy and Ananias walked with him in the middle of his mess. And that's a really beautiful thing. So now we keep going. Saul then, we don't have, we don't have this up on the slide, but, but for some days he was in Damascus. Saul starts preaching. It says immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues and he's teaching about how Jesus is the son of God. And it says all who heard him were amazed. And they said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? Let me just like, this is a free point. Okay, it wasn't even in my notes today, but as I was reading it, we couldn't skip it. There is, there is much less that we need to preach about. Like the greatest evidence for Jesus is a changed life is what this part of the story is saying. You just, you just start loving people different. You start treating people different. And they're like, isn't that the guy who? And then, yeah, you have a beautiful opportunity in that moment to start preaching Jesus and start proclaiming what he's done in your life. But as you go on, Saul now starts to experience some of the persecution. People are not happy that Saul's preaching about who Jesus is. And so he faces some persecution. He has to flee. And it says he goes all the way back to Jerusalem. And I, I want to I want to hone in on this verse for just a second. It says, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. I want to highlight that word attempted for just a moment. 
Do you hear the pain that maybe is in that phrase right there? Why is it painful? Well, it says in the next line, they, they were all afraid of him. I'd say that's reasonable that the disciples were afraid of him. But this next line is probably where it really hurt for Saul. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. I don't know if you've ever attempted to join a community and that community was clearly not interested in your involvement, but that can hurt, especially when that community is a church. There's a phrase that's a lot more common and probably a lot more of you are familiar with it, but the phrase church hurt is getting all the more common in the world that we're living in today. And whether it's because you tried to join a church and that church didn't welcome you, maybe you used to work for that church and you were no longer a part of that staff. Maybe you, you always wanted to work at that church and they never paid you. Maybe there is a, a, an actual, very real, inflicting, hurtful thing that a leader said to you and you're no longer a part of that faith community. But like, I just, just for our own peace of mind in this room, if you've experienced church hurt, could you just raise your hand in this room right now? Yes, look around. By the way, I'm not raising my hand to show you how to like demonstrate how to raise your hand. Like I, I've experienced some pain from the church. The church, I love Charles Spurgeon's thinking on the church. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of, prince of preachers, right? He says the church is the dearest place on earth. And I do believe that to be true. I've experienced that. I've experienced that here in this community. Although this community, we are not perfect. Let me just lay that on the table right here. But I've experienced that this is the dearest place on earth. Uh, but he also will say, Charles Spurgeon would also say, he said, if I, if I were going to try to find a, a perfect church, I'd be reluctant to join because the minute I joined, I knew that that church, if they were perfect before, they're not going to be perfect after I joined them. So I've, I've found the conversation, like we, we probably owe a whole space to create, to just talk and process and hopefully heal from some church hurt that's happened because that was about a hundred hands in the room that just went up. So we've, we've been there, we've experienced it. And, and I think some helpful language for you is to distinguish between being a critic and being a cynic. I love this language. I heard this from a guy a while back. Um, food critics don't get in the business of being a food critic because they hate food. Doesn't that make sense? No, actually, like a food critic probably gets in the business of being a food critic because they actually really just hate bad food and they think that all food should be good, of which I, like, I'm of that mental persuasion. I agree. <laughs> I want to spend time eating food. It, it should be good food. I've only got so many days left here on this earth. I don't know how many there are but I want to eat some nice food while I'm here. A food critic carefully evaluates what's wrong, what happened, what mistakes were made, what part of the process didn't go well in preparing or in, in putting together a plate of food. I think if you are experiencing church hurt, if you're experiencing someone that stung, here, here's what I know. I know, that, I know that pains inflicted from spiritual leaders cut differently than almost any other kind of pain that you can experience in your life. I know that's true. And I know that the temptation would be to become a cynic. A cynic is constantly critical. A cynic is, is, is filled with bitterness. And I, I don't want you in the middle of your hurt that you've experienced from the church to become a cynic. Because what happens when you become a cynic is you start to say, well, well, those people hurt me, that church hurt me. And then what you see now happening with all this deconstruction that's going on is they start to attach all those people to Jesus. And that's where you just made a huge bad leap. Jesus loves his church. The church is the bride of Christ, but Jesus is not the church. The church is run by imperfect people. The church is filled with imperfect people. And people, pardon my language here, but they can suck. 
Jesus never sucks. Jesus is always awesome. People can make huge mistakes and cause pain. So do not associate those two together or you will become a cynic and you will grow bitter and you will miss being a part of the community that you are meant to belong into. Now, if we want to be critics, we want to say, I just don't know if that church, that kind of church structure, that kind of church polity brings about the best kind of pastors in this world. Now we can have a conversation. I don't know if the way that this is structured, I don't know if the way that they're paying people, I don't know the way that that's working. Now that is a conversation that is worth having. I would actually put myself on a church critic hat. Why? Because I love church. I love the local church. I'm, I'm like team local church. I wish I had t-shirts made for how much I love the local church. And I know that she hurts people all the time. And that's why I would consider myself a church critic because I wanna be about finding good churches, not tolerating bad churches. I think bad churches should get better. That's just my bit on church hurt there. Here's, here's what happens though. Saul comes in and he, and he wants to join the church. And it says he attempted to join the church. And he was met with this reluctance, met with this, this distance from the disciples. I, I can only imagine what the, what the gatherings would have felt like. Is it like everyone's sitting right here and Saul's like, you know, back in that corner up there where it's dark. And I, like, is there a seat up there? I can't even tell. But like, the courage of what had to, have, had to have been present for what happens next. It says, but Barnabas. Praise God for Barnabas. Without Barnabas, there, there's no author of half of your New Testament, I would say. But what does Barnabas do? It says he, he took him and he brought him. He took him and he brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how Damascus had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. You know what Barnabas did? Barnabas went and he vouched for him. He went and got this guy. And I love that it says that he, and he went and he brought him to the apostles. Sometimes some of your people that have experienced hurt from the church, some of the people that are reluctant to come into this place, all it really takes is for you to go out and to bring them. I know what happens to you is, is terrible. I'm sorry about that pain that was inflicted here, but you put your arm around somebody and you bring them in. Everybody needs a Barnabas in their life to bring them in, to show them the safe way into the community. Gosh, it, it, is, it is hard to get connected into a church, especially if that church already has this long established community. That's one of the things that I just want to continually celebrate about every single one of you. You have no idea what kind of difference it makes if during the greeting time, you go and talk to that person that looks like it might be their first time. Maybe that person who looks a little bit confused. Maybe they even look like they don't really belong here. Can I tell you this story real quick? We, uh, it's not like you have a choice. I have the microphone, you don't, right? <laughs> We've been hosting the Surf 68 Resource Center here at our church the first and third Thursday of every month. We have this beautiful team that's been helping uh, create this space where people can come in, they can get resources no matter who they are, no matter what their story is. And, and this last Thursday, you guys, we had, we had like almost 50 people come in here and get resources. They came into the church, right in the family room there. And they're getting loved on. They're getting cared on by people here who are sitting next to you. I, I'm so grateful for the team that's doing this, for Katie heading this up. It's just this awesome, awesome thing. I, uh, a couple weeks ago, I, this, this guy, I'm talking to this guy, and he's this kind of guy, like, I'm not judging him, right? I'm just, I'm just evaluating it honestly. He looked like a dude who hadn't been to church in a little while, Okay. His, his girlfriend's over here getting some help. She's talking to somebody and I'm having a conversation with this guy and this guy used the F word liberally in our conversation. <laughs> like I was just, I, you know, I was shocked. I was like, I didn't even know you could use it that way. Like I didn't even know, <laughs> I didn't even know it worked in a sentence like that. But the way he said it, it did, you know? 
And my first gut reaction was like, okay, who's around me right now? Or like, are we good at this conversation right here? And then, you know what my immediate second thought was? How awesome. How awesome that some guy who had no business, he didn't look like he belonged in a church, he didn't look like he fit the nice little church-going mold, but somebody had said, hey, come on in here. There's a church who's willing to help you. And he got brought in to the church. Isn't that a cool picture? I want to be a church that's filled with Barnabases because I love it when the church gets a little messy. I think that's how we know we're doing it right. Yeah, not everyone dresses the right way. Not everyone smells the same way. But golly, that's how we know we're doing ministry, isn't it? I don't want our church to just look like a bunch of cookie-cutter people that all look the exact same. I want us to represent what this city looks like. And there are people in this city who need love, who need someone to pay attention to them, who need, like a Barnabas, to say, hey, put your arms on their shoulders and say, I got a place where you can come sit on Sunday morning, 8.30, 10.30. You can sit right next to me. How beautiful. How beautiful. If you keep going on, Acts 27 says, Barnabas took and brought him in to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he'd sent them to the Lord and how on Damascus he'd preached boldly in the name of Jesus. But it ends it this way in this section. Um, oh, where did it go? Can you give me that last verse, Judy? Yeah, 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit What's those last two words there? Oh, you don't have them. It multiplied. It multiplied. I think if we want to see a church that multiplies in our day, and if we want to glean some things from this story of Saul encountering Jesus, here's a few things I think we could take with us today. Like Saul, we all need a personal encounter with Jesus. Every single person in this room, you can't rely on my encounter with Jesus. You yourself need a personal experience with Jesus Christ. He loves you. He has plans for you. You are his poetry, it says in Ephesians chapter two. You are his chosen instrument that he wants to write a redemptive melody on your life. Like Ananias, we should walk with people in the middle of their mess. We should walk with people through their mess. Ananias had to spend three days leading this blind guy around for a little while. And, and my experience has been it takes a whole lot longer than that most of the time when you're leading people who, who are, life is in a mess. We're called to walk with them. We're called to be present with them. We're called to show them the love that has been given to us. And like Barnabas, we put our arm around messy people because once, if we're honest, we were a mess. We were. You know the, uh, the hymn, Amazing Grace, right? It's written by John Newton. John Newton is this guy who actually in a former life, before he wrote that song, was a slave trader. He saw human beings as commodities to be purchased at a good price and then sold at a better price so that he could make a profit. And as he comes to know Jesus, believe it or not, the, that, that slavery thing still had to work its way out of him a little bit. It didn't happen the moment he became a Christian, which that's messy, isn't it? But as he becomes a Christian, as he's reflecting on his life, it, it's he lived in the 1800s, so they didn't have the word, but it would appear that, that he ended his life with dementia and that he could really only remember two things, they would say. This is a rumor, of course, but it would say that I am a terrible sinner and Jesus is an amazing savior. Those were two things that he could remember well. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's language we don't like to use to describe ourselves. You know, I don't know what kind of positive self-talk you write on your mirror, the affirmations you give yourself daily but wretch is probably not one of the words that you're using to describe yourself that often. 
In fact, some denominations have tried to rewrite the lyrics of that popular hymn to say they've saved a soul like me. Some of you know those words. Wretch is just too harsh. That's too nasty. Listen to me. If you don't understand the kind of wretch you were, you might have been a righteous wretch. You might have had a lot of your own self-righteousness that you thought really looked good to the world around you. Morally, you might have been really upright, but you might have been doing all of that righteousness just to parade your own self-righteousness to the Christian world around you, which means nothing if you don't have the inner working of Jesus going on in your heart. It's about the amazement of the grace that measures the effectiveness of your spirituality. So amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Those are the right words. Some of you know full well the wretch that you used to be. But as we consider how much grace we've received, then and only then can we be people who extend that grace to somebody else. So we're going to take a time now. We're going to reflect in communion. I'd invite you to grab communion. If you um, didn't grab it, Laura, you can come on out. You can play some keys for us. Here's two things that I'd like for you to consider as we receive communion together today as as a family. How has Jesus been gracious to you? I think a measure of specificity in your own heart during this time. Yeah, you can just throw your hand up if you don't have communion. Um, listen, as we're receiving, we're going to take about five minutes here. How has Jesus been gracious to you? Maybe he's been gracious to you even this morning. You can think of some things that he had to extend some grace your way as you were getting your kids ready for church. Maybe it's mistakes that you feel like still haunt your past, still feel like discredit you from ever being an instrument that God would choose. And then I think the second question is just as powerful. God didn't give you, you know, I always loved Kent's language. God didn't give you all this grace so you could be this big, fat grace receptacle, just bask in the grace of God. No, we're made to be a pipe, not a pot. That grace was given to you so it could be extended to somebody else. So in your life, I'm not talking about conceptually, ethereally. I'm talking about practically. Right now, who's somebody in your life that you need to extend grace to? Who's somebody that you've kind of stopped walking with them because their life is such a mess and the spirit might be prompting you in this moment to say, no, 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 you need to reach out to them. It's time, it's time. It's time to start walking with that person again. Who do you need to extend grace to? Who do you need to be a Barnabas to? Who's somebody that their life's a disaster right now, but they just are in desperate need of someone to go grab them by the shoulder and say, hey, come on, walk with me. I've been given much grace. And so I'm gonna extend much grace. Let me pray and then we'll spend some time in communion together. I just want to invite you, if you're not a member of our church, we don't put any parameters on that for communion. If you are a part of the body of Christ, we would say welcome, welcome and receive communion this morning. But maybe you're that person that I was talking about earlier that, that hasn't yet embraced that you're following after the way of Jesus. You haven't given your life to him yet. And I just want to invite you, like this moment in communion, it's not just eating bread, it's not just drinking juice, it's participating in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And so this moment's not yet for you, but if you want to make that decision, I don't think there's any better decision you could make today. I'd love to talk with you. I'll be sitting down here. Our prayer team will be up front afterwards. They'd love to lead you in your first time of communion if you want to come and you want to receive for the first time today. Because believe it or not, you are a chosen instrument of God. You're not in this room by accident. You, You were designed to reflect his goodness and his glory to the world around you. And that starts with you receiving the fact that he chose you and he loves you. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just come this moment. If there's anybody who needs to receive you for the first time today as a Lord and Savior, I pray that you'd give them the courage to lay down their life, trusting that you will resurrect it into something better.
they give up their old way of living, turn and start following after you. It takes a lot of courage. So I pray that the spirit would lead as he wants to lead today. And for all of us who have made that decision already, I pray that you'd help us remain tender and aware of the grace that you've extended our way. And would you give us divine opportunity in this next week to extend that grace to somebody. But if you would just kind of open up your hands like this. Jesus, first and foremost, we just thank you for the cross. We thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. God, I pray that every single person in this room would have a personal experience and encounter with you where we'd have a, a deeper understanding of how much you love us, how much you care for us, what your sacrifice means for our life, the righteousness that we now have because of you, Jesus. I pray that you would give us deeper understanding and a, and a greater grasp on all those spiritual truths that we already know. Jesus, I pray that we would receive your grace today. I pray that right now in the name of Jesus, for people who feel like a failure, people who feel broken, people who feel dirty, would they just receive your cleansing right now in Jesus' name? Will they take a step forward into the identity that you've already had for them? Chosen instrument, beloved son, beloved daughter, washed, clean, white as snow. And God, as we receive that mercy, help every single one of us as we step out of here, be quick to extend that grace to somebody this week. Help us see people that can be invited into your story. Help us look at messy people, not with annoyance, not with frustration, not with doubt or skepticism. Help us look at the mess of this world as opportunity. Opportunity for people to experience your love, for people to experience the grace that's been extended to us. People to be swept up in your story that you're writing in their life. Jesus, we love you and we're thankful for you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you.